Tonight, the, the subject is how the enemy stole our faith. How the enemy stole our faith. And I think about one weapon that Satan has used to corrupt, to corrupt the idea of God's agape love. And it is a pagan notion. It's this idea of the natural immortality of the soul. You know, this idea that the soul is immortal has almost been accepted universally almost in all times. It even had times where it infiltrated into ancient Hebrew thinking, into Judaism at times. But the New Testament idea is, in contrast, is very clear-cut, and that is that man is by nature mortal and is unconscious in death. That immortality can come only through Christ and that can be conferred only at the resurrection from the dead or by experiencing what the Bible calls translation. Both of the resurrection and translation without seeing death, those occur at the second coming of Christ. But the notion that man possesses inherent immortality requires that the righteous go to heaven directly upon their death, or, as some would have it, uh, some go to a halfway station in order to be purified in a place called purgatory. This teaching also requires that the wicked go directly at death to a place of endless life in incessant torment, and torture worse than anything that the German Gestapo could invent. And it can be readily seen that this doctrine not only bypasses uh, any need for resurrection of the dead, it also seriously distorts the character of God into what is virtually uh, a deity guilty of sadism. What's even more serious is that this pagan notion neatly destroys the real meaning of the cross of Christ because it corrupts the idea of God's love that was demonstrated on the cross. If this is true, then obviously, if the soul is immortal, if man is not by nature mortal, and when he dies, he rests in the grave, if man is naturally immortal, then it's impossible for Christ to have died on the cross. And God then could not truly love the world so much that he gave his only begotten son for us. It means then that God only lent us his son. And Christ could not have died for us a true death. He could not have died the equivalent of the second death, which is goodbye to life forever. Well, from this point of view, he merely, if, if Jesus didn't really die on the cross, then he merely suffered some mental anguish. He suffered some physical anguish, maybe like soldiers do who are mortally wounded in war. That is what kind of death he died on the cross. The idea is that Christ only lent himself to us briefly. This pagan notion of natural immortality has Christ assuring the thief on the cross that both he and Christ would together 
share a great reward that very day. So Jesus was speaking to the thief on the cross, and he said, Verily I say unto you, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Verily I say unto thee, comma, Today thou shalt be in paradise. If you put the comma before the word today, then the idea is that Jesus thought he really wasn't going to die and that he and the thief would be in paradise. However, if the comma is placed after the word today, Jesus is saying to the thief on the cross, this is in Luke 23, verse 42, Verily I say unto thee today, comma, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. It changes the meaning of the sentence, doesn't it? Jesus is saying, he's promising him today that he will be with him in paradise. So Jesus' words are not a denial that he would truly die on the cross. While it's true that up to this point, Jesus was conscious of ultimate victory, up to the point of his giving this promise to the thief on the cross, He was conscious of ultimate victory that did not end or neither did he fully fully experience the measure of his sufferings and death for us. Because after the episode with the repentant thief, we're told that the atmosphere around him, he was enveloped in a thick darkness. And Jesus entered into a terrible experience of the hiding of his father's face, which is something that he had never experienced before. So that what Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 is actually the case. He says that Paul writes that he was tasting death for every man. Jesus tasted death, was tasted death for every man. And this death is not what we superficially assume it to be. What we call death is not the real thing, for the Bible calls it sleep. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to John chapter 11 and look at this, John chapter 11. Jesus received word that one of his good friends, Lazarus, had fallen upon ill health and uh, to the point that it, uh, it was lethal, it took his life. And so Jesus determined to go and visit uh, his friend Lazarus. And it says in verse 11, John 11, verse 11, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus, Sleeps. See that word sleep there? But I go that I may awake him out of sleep. And then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. That's what a person needs when they're ill. They need good rest. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is what? Dead. So... What we call death, when we go to a funeral, Jesus calls that sleep. And so, 
when we go to a funeral, we do not see a person who has said goodbye to life forever because there is a resurrection for everyone. Jesus has said that there's going to be a resurrection of the good and there's going to be a resurrection of the bad, of the evil, in John chapter 5. So what we call death, Jesus has turned into a sleep. They're awaiting a resurrection. But that is not the kind of death that Jesus experienced on the cross. He didn't just rest or sleep over a weekend. He experienced the real thing. Uh, Jesus tasted the second death for every man, the death in which there is no cheering light of hope at all. And it's as though every cell of your body and your soul and your mind is agonizingly crushed by the horror of a great despair. And for Christ on his cross, there was no blessed unconsciousness to block out the full realization of this horrible darkness. No man since time began has ever felt that full weight of condemnation and despair except our Lord. It was the full weight of the curse of God that Paul, quoting Moses, said rested on everyone that hangeth on a tree. In Galatians 3.13, although no other crucified person ever felt it to the fullest. And this is what Isaiah means when he says that Christ poured out his soul unto death in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12. You know, we can really be thankful for the fact that upon every soul on this earth rests no condemnation from God that we all have been given the effective gift of justification, of a pardon. It's a, it's a pardon that makes possible our temporary life, however long our life lasts. But if we did not have that pardon, you know what? I think that we would all commit suicide if we had to bear the weight of our own personal guilt, wouldn't we? And so we can be thankful that Jesus bears the weight of our guilt and our condemnation. Um, and that is what he suffered on the cross, not just the personal guilt of one or two persons here or there, but the, the weight and the guilt and the condemnation of everyone upon this earth. So we can be thankful um, that the justification that God has given to us, um, it, it's, a, it's such a wonderful pardon that it lifts that guilt from our hearts, from our minds. And even the wicked, I think, people who don't understand it and don't appreciate it, uh, in some way it's so effective for them that they do not experience the full weight of their guilt either, of their sin and their wrongdoing in their life. It's beneficial for them. There are some who do succumb to feelings of suicide. I'll never forget a, a young father uh, when I was at the Vallejo Church. Um, used to sit in my Sabbath school class and worship service and then we received the word that he became so wrought, uh, distraught with despair that he went out to the Golden Gate and he jumped off of the bridge and left behind his wife and his daughter. And 
we got the news that makes us feel awful, doesn't it, when we get news like that? But if Jesus is bearing that guilt for us now, imagine what life would be if we didn't know that he was bearing that pardon and that, or bearing that guilt for us. We'd all be candidates for suicide, wouldn't we? We'd all be lining up to jump off the bridge out there. I'm afraid. And so Isaiah says that Christ poured out his soul unto death. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Can we imagine the horror of a great darkness forever, the aloneness, the forsakenness, or eternal separation from the Father, the utter ruin, the shame, and the humiliation that being lost involves? No, mercifully, we cannot comprehend it for the reason that Christ has already tasted it for us, drinking the bitter cup in our stead. We would perish if we did taste it. But this is what he endured for us. Jesus wasn't acting on the cross. He did truly feel it, especially when he cried out in those words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. And you know, Jesus meant every syllable of those words that he spoke. Not the pain of nails in his hands or his feet, but the horror of that eternal forsakenness which killed him. It was caused by the guilt that was laid upon him, the guilt of the accumulated sin of the world. The point is that in this was manifested the agape of God toward us. Now you can read in 1 John chapter 4 and verses 9 and 10. 1 John chapter 4 and verses 9 and 10. Where it says, Herein is love, or agape. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the Apostle John, all of the apostles, they didn't have any uh, taint of this Greek notion of the immortality of the soul in them whatsoever. The, the apostles understood what happened on the cross, that when Jesus was on the cross, he truly died. He poured out his soul unto death. That he didn't go spend a nice holiday somewhere resting for a couple of days. So the apostles understood the true meaning of the death that he experienced on the cross. So there was the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of the love of Christ which passes knowledge. It was displayed for the world and the universe to see. Look at Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 18 and 19. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. That we may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There it is. 
So with such a vision, the apostles also sense a mighty power tugging in their human hearts, a force that is truly phenomenal. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no lo- live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So if you look at the latter part of that verse 14 there, where it says, if one died for all, then all died, the reverse of that would be, if one had not died for all, then all would be dead. See? So this is uh, how the apostles felt about it. They felt compelled, constrained by this love. This is what motivated them. Just seeing what that love was resulted in this constraint. It went to work on their hearts immediately. So this is why we can say that faith is a heart appreciation for the love that was demonstrated on the cross. Faith is not some kind of a mystery, some kind of a nebulous thing. If you can really see and appreciate what Jesus went through for you, then you can say that you have faith. And that reconciles an alienated heart to God. We don't have to be one of the early apostles to see with eyes what they saw. Through the word, the Holy Spirit makes it come alive for us now. Our alienated hearts are likewise reconciled to God by faith. And this means that we are also reconciled to God's law at the same time. For our natural enmity against God consists in not being subject to the law of God. And since love is the fulfilling of the law, the faith which works by love immediately produces obedience to all of the commandments of God, including that fourth commandment, which is widely downtrodden, the Sabbath commandment. In the time of the apostles, I think we can be sure that they struggled with the same worldliness and sins that we see today in the world. We can be sure that There was sensuality and materialism, the love of money and luxury, living for one's own self were also as powerful temptations as they are today. Our pitiful struggles to overcome these temptations, they would have considered nonsense. What they did know was that faith worked, and it worked like a bomb exploding. We think it's so hard to follow Christ, to sacrifice for him, I think the disciples would have pitied our lack of understanding of God's love, which is the basis for faith. What they had was New Testament justification by faith, and they proclaimed the love of God and that faith, and they literally turned the world upside down with it and crucified the world unto themselves. Now, is it any wonder why Satan would want to eliminate the compulsion of agape, of divine love, 
I would say that that would be the target that he would go after to try to undermine right there. Because if he can undermine people's understanding of agape love, then he has them right where he wants them in a more self-focused kind of faith. So this was behind his efforts uh, in the early Christian era. He sought to distort agape and confuse the idea of agape until Christ had to sorrowfully say to the church at Ephesus, well, let's read it in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, and this is the first church in the sequence of seven, the church of Ephesus. So that would be the church of the apostles. But he says this, the true witness to the church of Ephesus. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first what? So they lost an understanding of agape in the early Christian church. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4. And many of the early church fathers um, lost its meaning, so much so that uh, Plotinus in the 3rd century rejected the idea that God is agape and boldly declared God to be the Hellenistic, the Greek idea of self-centered love based on the natural immortality of the soul. So entrenched had the apostasy from love become by the 5th century that Augustine, you've heard of St. Augustine and his the city of God, well, he was the father of uh, medieval Romanism, and he blended New Testament agape with Greek ideas of love, and he used the Latin word to describe it, caritas, from which we get our English word charity. You know, that's the word that's translates agape in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? It translates it charity, and charity is a, a, a mixture of agape and self-love. But the original word is agape. It shouldn't be translated charity. It should be translated agape or love, see? But Augustine was very successful in mingling self-love with the idea of God's love. And that became dominant during uh, Roman Christianity. Contrary to Augustine's intentions, it produced a deplorable system of salvation by meritorious works because it was self-centered in nature. And the worst tragedy came later on because Protestantism generally inherited Augustine's idea and perpetuated within itself the same principle of self-centeredness. So the idea of justification by faith commonly held by the reformers contained the seed of its own eventual corruption. It's no wonder that Revelation addresses the Reformation church of Sardis. Here in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1, this church of Sardis is the church at the time of the 16th century Reformation. And it says this, I know your works and that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. 
And that was the description of the Reformation church. Luther, however, in the 16th century, he rejected this pagan notion of the natural immortality of the soul. And so as a result, he began to break down Augustine's mixing up of God's agape with self-love. And Luther began to restore the original New Testament idea of agape. So Luther's grasp of the biblical truth of the nature of man, that man is mortal, this enabled him at times to have a clearer understanding of justification by faith. But Calvin and some of the other reformers, they clung to the pagan papal notion, as did Luther's followers and his descendants, the Lutherans, And so with their idea of the love of God thus crippled, it's easy to see how their idea of faith was likewise maimed. They were never able to escape that tethered circle of a self-centered faith and get back to the grand New Testament idea of agape. Their concern was always foreshadowed by their own sense of insecurity, of fear, Uh, Questions like, how can I be sure that I'm going to escape the tortures of my soul in hell? How can I be sure I will get a reward in heaven? Those were of necessity questions that were uppermost in people's minds. It was not their fault. Uh, These uh, men of the Reformation, they were grand individuals. They were seeking to know the truth. They had simply inherited a false doctrine regarding the nature of man. And so their ideas of justification by faith were always um, tinctured with self-concern and a horrible fear of eternal torture and torment. And lurking beneath the surface was the idea that God is vengeful, God is angry, um, God who hardly deserved the name of even being a father. But the Apostle John saw in 1 John 4.18 how Perfect agape casteth out fear. Let's look at that. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18. 1 John 4, 18. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we have boldness in the day of judgment, because he, as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in agape, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in agape. So God's agape love, as it infills our soul, it displaces all of this fear that we have based on our human insecurities. Well, The reformers, many of them, they couldn't really comprehend. They were obsessed as they were by the doctrine of natural immortality. They could only work toward degrading their concept of Christ's sacrifice. Their self-centered search for security was unavoidable. They could never break through the myths to see New Testament righteousness by faith in all of its majestic grandeur. And so confused were many of the Calvinists that they distorted the New Testament to make it teach that An arbitrary God predestined one to be saved regardless of his belief and another to be lost regardless of his faith. 
And for all practical purposes, this brand of Calvinism degraded justification by faith into justification by arbitrary predestination. Such broken cisterns are hardly a pure source of the water of life. This does not impugn the sincerity or the devotion of the reformers of previous centuries. The kindest thing to say is that they were sincerely and unknowingly confused by their inheritance of a pagan papal error of the doctrine of the natural immortality of the soul. There were some reformers who almost succeeded. I think about John and Charles Wesley. They almost broke through the confusion into the sunlight because they rejected the Calvinist form of predestination and their concept of the character of God was immeasurably superior. But John and Charles Wesley, they were still confused by the doctrine of the natural immortality of the soul, which in subtle ways beneath the surface still worked to distort for them the full truth of the gospel and to hold them to some extent bound by self-centered concern. So it may be said of them, all what Hebrews says of earlier generations, that God has provided some better things for us, Hebrews 11.40, in the end of time. You know, the road of the righteous, according to Solomon, as he wrote it in the Proverbs, the road of the righteous travel is like the sunrise getting brighter and brighter until daylight has come. And God has, I just feel like, don't you, like I'm like a little cradle roll student trying, groping here, you know, trying to get a little light And the Lord has more and more and more for us uh, so that we can know the fullness of his agape love and break through some of these um, fogs and mists that have surrounded our, our ideas about God. But God honored the angel of the Church of the Reformers. He promised them, I will give him the morning star. Well, scattered here and there in the centuries since Luther, there have been a few individuals who saw clearly and they spoke boldly enough to reject the pagan doctrine of the natural immortality of the soul. You know, the New Testament doctrine is that there is life only in Jesus Christ. Life is not inherent within man. Life is derived only from Jesus Christ. And it is conditional immortality, which was often derided. There there were some after John Wesley, who began to see that immortality is conditional upon life in Christ, but they were ridiculed and derided. Uh, these were, they were called soul sleepers, you know, or mortalism. Uh, oh, you are the people who believe that when you die, your soul is asleep, you know. Have you ever been called a soul sleeper? People still make that accusation against Adventists to this day. And an Adventist uh, researcher by the name of Brian Ball, who uh, did some studies regarding the English Reformation, um, he says this. In 1646, Richard Overton was sent to the Tower. You know what the Tower of London is? Anybody who's visited downtown London, you know, that's on the tour bus. (laughs) It'll take you right by the Tower of London. That's where they locked up and throw away the key, you know, and you more or less rotted in there with the rats along the Thames River. Um, 
Well, they took this fellow Richard Overton in 1646. They threw him into the tower for having written a book which explained the mortalist viewpoint. In other words, that man is mortal by nature. Then in 1658, Thomas Hall listed mortalism as one of the devilish errors of the time. And it had been condemned as heretical in the 42 Articles of Religion of 1553. So writes uh, Brian Ball, The English Connection. So the, the Bible idea that man is mortal has had a hard uh, way to make its entrance into Christianity. It has, by and large, been rejected by the majority of Christians to this day. Christians just believe when you die, that's the door to heaven. You go right upstairs, you know, and you've got a better life. But the Bible teaches that when one dies, they're sleeping, and they're awaiting the resurrection or translation. Well, in the last days, there has to be a full recovery of the everlasting gospel, which is justification by faith. Both Abraham and the Apostle Paul, they experienced it in all of its genuineness. And it must also be experienced by a vast multitude uh, we're told of in Revelation 14. Let's look at that. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. There is to be a vast multitude that will experience what we read about here. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. These are the folk who experiencing the everlasting gospel, righteousness by faith, justification by faith, however you want to term it. Um, they've experienced the fullness of agape. And consequently, they have their picture taken with Jesus the Lamb on Mount Zion because it's these three angels that produce the people who are standing there on Mount Zion that you read about in verse 1. Revelation 14, 1. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion. What is a lamb? That's the crucified one, isn't it? The crucified one will be in heaven on Mount Zion. And when you think of the crucified one, you think of the agape love of God, don't you? Now, who does he have his picture taken with? It says, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. How would you like to have your... So in order to be part of that picture, God's agape love, the everlasting gospel is imparted to your heart and to mine. And then you have your portrait taken with him on the Mount Zion. See, that's a beautiful... I want my picture taken with Jesus. I want to be in the church directory up there, don't you? <laughs> with, with the lamb, the sacrificed one, absolutely. So... It is impossible to worship him in spirit and in truth unless his character of true love is clearly perceived as free from any pagan papal distortion. And the hour of his judgment that we read about here is not the hour when his sadistic, when God's sadistic vengeance 
where he condemns the world. He expressly said that he did not come to the world to do that. Let's look at John 5 and verse 22 on this point. John chapter 5 and verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Chapter 12, verse 47 and 48. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. The word here, of course, is the gospel, isn't it? Huh? I'll tell you, a person who has hindered and rejected the cross of Christ and that agape love on the last day, that will be the worst con- torture of conscience ever. You know, and they will see Jesus come as the Lamb. See, when Jesus comes a second time, it's, not, it's the same Jesus that was crucified. And when Jesus was on the earth the first time, he did not come with a ministry of condemnation and judgment. And it's the same Jesus that comes the second time because we know he comes as a lamb the second time, the crucified one. And so when it, Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7 say the hour of his judgment is come, it literally means... The hour of God's judgment has come because he himself needs to be acquitted and vindicated. And this happens when all of the myths and the distortions and misrepresentations concerning him are at last blown away by the full truth. Um, God is under judgment right now, wouldn't you say? I mean, the facts of the case are most of the peop- most people in the world have uh, misunderstood his character. They think he is a god of vengeance, a god of judgment, and uh, he he has a, a how would you say it an image problem with most people in the world, and so he's under judgment, and this is just exactly the p- position that Satan wants him to be in. You know, but at the end, there is when his judgment is come. It kind it's now is a full revelation of the truth about God and all of His agape. See what we're learning right now. We're ahead of the curve a little bit, just a little bit, (laughs) more than most, because when Jesus comes, all of us will be there in terms of understanding His character because his agape will have transformed our hearts, and we will see him that way when he returns. We will not see him as coming to condemn us, but as coming to rescue us. So right now, we're just a little bit ahead of the curve of most folks, because we're beginning to see some of these mists and the fogs evaporate and see him in the true light. And uh, when the hour of his judgment is fully revealed... He will be seen by all as being the God of agape. 
So here is predicted the full recovery of New Testament agape, which alone makes the everlasting gospel to come into its own. And significantly, the fruitage of this revival of the gospel is the development of a people who are characterized as they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Only agape is the fulfilling of the law. And here again, New Testament faith is seen as a heart, human heart appreciation of the cross. Keeping the commandments of God for the saints is no fear-inspired search for security or assurance. It is the automatic expression of their appreciation of Calvary. They simply glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto them, and they unto the world. They know they live only because Christ died for all. New Testament faith sees the grave as one's only rightfully earned reward. Everything else that we have is ours only by grace. Everything else is by grace. And in this faith is a guarantee of happiness and the end of repining and jealousy and selfishness. They cannot exist in company with faith. And obedience becomes as natural as daybreak following night. The people of the last days who are saints in God's sight feel the grateful appreciation that moved Elizabeth Clefin to write her hymn beneath the cross of Jesus. Take your hymnal and look at uh, hymn number 303. So Marjorie, let's sing this hymn together, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. And while she's doing that, uh, Norm has been so kind as to put together a nice little compilation of spirit of prophecy and Bible quotations on love and purity. And if you didn't, I handed this out earlier. If you didn't get a copy of it, I'll give you a copy here. He's made several. But the first statement says, Love and purity are the attributes God prizes most. Agape and purity. The attributes which God prizes most are charity and purity. These attributes should be cherished by every Christian. It is the humble, contrite heart that God values. With him, there is no respect of persons. The attributes that he prizes most are purity and agape, and these are possessed only by the Christian. Now let's sing this song by Elizabeth Clefin, 303, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. of Jesus I fain take my stand the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land home within the wilderness a rest upon the from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. 
very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears to wonders I confess the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. I take across thy shadow abiding place. I sunshine of his face, content to let the world go by, to know no gain nor loss. My sinful self I think she captured it in song, don't you? Those are very moving words. Elizabeth Cleefen, I think she could have been a singing evangelist for the Apostle Paul. Maybe write some songs and do evangelism with him. She saw what Paul saw, a faith which works by agape, which works by love and kills every form of human selfishness at its root. A believing heart responds not a whit less than to say with Isaac Watts, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Let's sing that one. Love so amazing. It doesn't go by that title. Love so amazing. Let me look up. Hmm? When I survey the wonders. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Would that be 154 or 155? Now, when you sing this song, remember that what he's really expressing here in these words is justification by faith. Okay? Is it 154? Okay. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Contempt on all my 
that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to on that verse, did you see justification by faith? That's the experience of it right there. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingle down. Did there such love and sorrow the motive of a reconciled heart constrained by the love of Christ in the cross. It sees and appreciates that, that this hymn says it, doesn't it? Encapsulates it. Demands my soul, my life, my all love so amazing, so divine. That's the agape. And then in the second verse he says, forbid it Lord that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. It was the Son of God who poured out everything for us. It was not exclusively the Son of Man. It was the Son of God. See? So those are two hymns, beautiful hymns in our hymnal that express this, in words, justification by faith and the motive power for it. It's that experience, see? Heart reconciliation. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, tonight we can just but feebly express to you our thanks. When you have given us such a measureless gift that cannot be computed in dollars and cents, and our little minds can only wrap around so much, how can we say thank you? All you desire for us to say is yes to the gift, not to hinder it. And so, Lord, we pray that our experience might be motivated by the agape love of Christ. Seeing and appreciating the cross day by day, a deepening experience of repentance with Jesus at the foot of the cross, expressed in a faith that works by love. This we ask in the Savior's name. Amen. So I asked a wise old man not long ago, I said, what can we do to hasten 
the spreading of the third angel's message to the whole world. And the wise old man said, don't hinder it. So don't do anything foolish that would hinder it. I pray that prayer. I say, I say often to the Lord, Lord, keep me from doing something foolish that would hinder the gospel. Amen. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.